are you ready for some thinking out loud on America Out Loud? I like the idea of thinking out loud. And I think to a certain extent, that's what we do here every week on Faith Is. We think out loud with each other in an attempt to grow in God's direction, to stretch in God's direction, to understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And that challenges us sometimes, and we need to be challenged, but sometimes it encourages us because we can say, hey, I'm learning to trust God. And so today we're going to do that some more. But first, I thought before we get into some talking about the scriptures and some important things from those uh, important pages, the, the Bible is so important, we must not we must not get over that. In fact, I want to talk about that and some other things because we haven't done 10 things I think for a while. And so I thought, well, why don't we think a little bit and bring to bear some of our thoughts, some of our learning about God and about what he's doing and what he expects of us and, and apply it to the situation at hand, to the world around us. And so that's what I try to do when, when we take these 10 things. And there are just 10 things that I sit down and I think about, okay, well, what have I been thinking and what might God help us with? So there are no particular uh, topic sequence or anything like that. Uh, some of them kind of flow from one to the other because that's the way I would think of them. But they're, they're just kind of random, on the other hand, and just kind of thinking out loud. So there's a risk to that because sometimes when you think out loud, you don't know exactly what might come out until it comes out. But that's okay, too. We can take that risk. And I hope you have a place where you can think out loud with some people. But the first thing that I want to make sure is that, is that we that we discuss some things and one of the really important things that's been going on and I've been thinking about this since it first occurred back early in October is this situation in Gaza and I haven't heard and I haven't really sought to find out I mean I haven't looked high and low I've just kind of tried to pay attention as it pops up Uh, but I haven't heard a lot of church leaders talk about the situation in Gaza they're probably talking about it in ways that I haven't heard but one of the things that strikes me, and, and the reason that I noticed it, is because there wasn't a church I attended when I was away in October that even mentioned the Gaza situation. And that kind of struck me as interesting and, and disappointing, because we should at least pray for those situations, but there was no real mention of it. And I, I think there are a couple things that are important when incidents like this happen. Um, probably more than a couple, but let's just confine it to a couple of things today. And one of those is that when things like this happen, it's an opportunity for the church to bring moral clarity to a situation. And clearly, there's reason for moral clarity. When a group of people attacks an innocent group of people, it's clear who is the aggressor, who is wrong to do that. Murder is very clearly forbidden by God. He says, don't murder. That's not complicated. And the church needs to stand up and say, when a group, in this case Hamas, attacks these people in Israel, they are murdering innocent people. And we need to bring moral clarity to that. Some people have trouble. They want to try to stay in between and not take sides. Well, I don't necessarily think we need to take the side of either Israel or Hamas. We need to be on God's side. We don't ask God to be on our side. We ask, how can we be on God's side? And clearly, God has spoken and said, don't murder. 
The other thing that's very interesting to me, and I've heard it a little bit, and probably you have too, is that this is a real wake-up call to all of us because we have clearly seen evil. And it seems to me that the West meaning our country and other Western countries, are having increasing difficulty identifying good versus evil. And in fact, what we want to do is we want to say whatever we want to say is good and everything else that we don't want to say is evil, and we want to be able to make that call back and forth. Well, God has clearly told us that there is good and there is evil, and we ought to be able to help people recognize what you're seeing here in what was done, the horrors that we're learning about and that are continuing is clearly an expression of evil. And we need to be willing to face that. And we should not refuse to call evil, evil. In fact, the the refusal of some Christian leaders to actually take a stand or to call something evil when it clearly is, is very, very disappointing, at the very least disappointing. So we need to be able to say, this is evil. And the other thing we need to be able to say then is, you know, when you see great evil like this, we need to remind ourselves that great evil comes from smaller decisions that are clearly right or wrong. And for our own lives, we need to pay attention to the things that we choose so that we choose good and not find ourselves on that downward slide to evil where it gets horrible like we've seen it in this situation. The second thing I've been thinking about that is I wonder how many people realize that so much of the the influence in thinking about this conflict, this horrible evil event, is influenced by Marxist ideology. And I think that's one of the reasons, and I don't know how to prove this, so don't ask me to prove it, but I think that's one of the reasons people are having a difficult time sorting out good from evil. I suspect that even in the church, people have been so influenced by Marxist ideology, they may not even realize it's Marxist, but they've been so influenced by it that they're having trouble sorting out evil and good. And what I mean by this Marxist influence is that Marxist ideology has categorized people as either the oppressed or the oppressor. The oppressed are always recognized as the people that don't have it so good. Maybe they're impoverished. Maybe they have certain disadvantages. Anybody who is, by their way of saying it, kept down are oppressed. And the reason they are in the condition they are in, maybe they don't have a good lifestyle, a good standard of living, whatever the situation might be, it doesn't matter. If you are down and out, or sort of down and sort of out, you are oppressed. And the reason you are down and out is because someone, an oppressor, has put you and kept you down and out. So any oppressor, Anybody who does well and seems to flourish is then viewed as an oppressor because you must be flourishing because you oppress somebody else and you have what you have and you have the good life you have because you push somebody down and they couldn't have the good life you have. There's, there's clearly a definition of oppressed or oppressor. There's no recognition in this ideology that people have a better life because they worked for it. They thrived because they did the right thing. They sacrificed. They 
had a work ethic that helped lift them to a level they never imagined. So there's this real challenge of of oppressed versus oppressor. And of course, the Bible doesn't talk about that. It talks about the poor and the need to help them, but it doesn't categorize people in oppressed versus oppressor. It simply challenges us who are followers of Jesus to help those who need help. It doesn't call us to categorize and blame in that sense. And the third thing I've been thinking is on a little different subject from that, and that is, uh, just so you're aware, just so you prepare yourself, I know some of you are not wanting to think about this at this point, but it's coming, so you, you can run, but you can't hide. And what I mean is that silly season is approaching. And what I mean by silly season, and you're probably already aware of it, is that there's going to be a big election next November. Every time... The cycle rolls around so that we have a presidential election. Things really heat up. In my particular state, there will be other elections, so it's going to be a lot of stuff going on. And I have tended to refer to this as silly season because silly things happen. So take it seriously. It matters who you vote for. It really matters. Do the best you can. Look for the candidate that will lessen evil. That's the best distinguisher I know of to tell you. None of them are going to be perfect. Uh, That's obvious. And approach it with a sense that it's very important that we make good decisions. And approach it with a sense that things are going to happen. And don't let your life be ruined because of that. It's also important, related to that, for us to begin to, to remind each other. And sometimes I think we're forgetting this in this overly politicized environment we live in, we need to remind each other that in spite of what all the candidates might tell us, we cannot save ourselves. Certainly they cannot save us. We need to depend upon God, and that's how we will get through, and that's how we will thrive. So just a couple of thoughts about that as you're thinking about it. Prepare yourself for it. Don't dread it. Don't get down about it. Just keep it in perspective and to realize it's silly season. It's going to happen. It matters who we choose and how we decide. But in the end, it's God that we depend upon. And our elected officials, they cannot, they will not save us. Third thing that I, or the fourth thing, I guess, that I've been thinking about is this Old Testament story of the Exodus. I've been thinking about that for weeks now. It just continues to rivet my attention. And it's not that I think I'm developing any great new insights to it as much as it continues to help me refine my thinking. It continues to challenge me to consider it differently than I ever have before. And I'm not quite sure why I never thought of it like this before. But uh, I'm continually coming back to this idea that the, the Old Testament story of the exodus of God's people from Egypt. Remember Moses went to Egypt, said to Pharaoh, let my people go. Ultimately, they said, go. God led them out. And they went all the way out of Egypt across the Red Sea. Well, through maybe the Red Sea is a better way to say it, to Sinai. And they continued on and eventually came to the promised land where they settled. And it's that whole story of God delivering them from the evil in Egypt to taking them all the way to the land that he promised them that is really 
a huge insight into what God is doing in what we call salvation. It's really what I have thought of as the quintessential salvation story from the Old Testament. And God wants us to learn from that about his saving work in our lives. And I think we need to, to ponder that and consider that as you learn the story of of the exodus and all the things that happened it gives us great insight to god and his desires and we need to learn from that and so i think also number five a key and often a missing ingredient in our understanding of the exodus story is that god is not just delivering his people from slavery Now, when I learned the story, maybe when you learned the story, that was a big part of the focus. God got his people out and they were no longer slaves. And that's a good thing. That's good news. That's a good part of the story. But delivering them from slavery was not the whole story. And we need to understand that God is not leading them just out from something, but he's leading them to something. He wants to lead them in the way they should go. He wants to make something of them, to form them into his holy people, and then ultimately to live with them forever. And number six that I think related to that is that we forget and we have not tended to emphasize that God really wanted to dwell in the midst of his people. He wanted to live with his people. In fact, that was the whole way we hear that and see that from the whole instruction God gave and then what the people ultimately did in the first creation of the tabernacle, building of the tabernacle. That was a portable place for God to meet, a portable, we might say in our terms, worship center. And that tabernacle was intended to be placed in the center of the people, and the people all camped around that. And God, that was the place God had given them, and God wanted to dwell among his people. And we don't think about that. It started with that simple tabernacle that, that they built that was portable, that they that God could use to lead them where they needed to go. It later culminated in the temple in Jerusalem that Solomon built, and including a place for God to dwell in the temple. And it further culminates at the end of time when God shows us a glimpse of what he will do in giving us a holy city to live in, and he will be right there in the center of that. And we miss, I think, this whole concept in the story of the Exodus when we don't, when we don't remind ourselves of that. And, and a part of me wants to say, and I don't remember ever reading it, as God expressing it this way, I mean, he might have so, but I think it's a fair interpretation of, of, of what God was going through. You know, we think about what the people went through getting out of Egypt, but here's God. He gets them out of Egypt. It's no hardship for him to get them out of Egypt. He, he easily manages that. They get to Sinai, and he gives them the what we call the Ten Commandments, and then Moses comes down, and they discover that the people have rejected God by creating this golden calf. A horrible incident. Moses shatters the commandments. The covenant has been shattered again by the people's behavior. And God threatens to annihilate them. Moses intervenes. God does not annihilate them. But he says, I can't live among them lest I destroy them. Imagine God's disappointment that he got those people out of Egypt and he wanted to have a people where he could dwell with them. 
right in the center of their community. And I don't know whether God would express it as disappointment. He was just angry. He was very angry. But I think we should think about that. His refusal, even though the plan was in place, even though he had this idea to have a, a place for him to dwell, and how he had to live, meet Moses outside the camp for a while. And, and God really wants to live in and with his holy people. And that's part of the Exodus story. We need to remember that. Well, let's keep thinking. So number seven, what I've been thinking is related a little bit to this too. And this is where I sometimes get myself in trouble. But, you know, we have to address some of these things to help ourselves. And I've been thinking about how to express this. So hang on and and listen all the way through here. Don't jump to a quick conclusion. Many people have gotten bad understandings because they jumped to conclusions. But the the number seven thing I think this week is that I think we need to be mature from our concept of salvation as praying a prayer. We have tended to think that salvation meant praying a prayer often described as the sinner's prayer. Now, before you get too all wound up, just hang in there a little bit that we're thinking out loud, remember. So we want to think about this. Now, it's not that I'm saying that there's something inherently bad about the sinner's prayer or praying a prayer of commitment to God. That's not at all what I'm going to suggest here. But I do think we need to mature beyond our thinking that all we have to do is pray a prayer and we're good. You see, many people, I'm concerned, many people at one time in their lives have been told, well, all you need to do is pray this prayer and mean it, and you're good with God. And I'm concerned that some people have prayed that prayer, and that was it. And they thought, well, I'm good with God. I can go do whatever I want to now. I don't have to worry because I'm good with God. Well, that's not really what the Bible says, and it's not really what this story of the Exodus teaches us. Yes, God calls us, all of us, to make a commitment to follow him. And if it involves praying a prayer, then that's what it involves, okay? We make a commitment to follow him. And, and, but at the same time, we need to realize that a decision to follow Jesus is just the beginning. It's just the beginning of that whole process we call salvation. Important beginning, yes. Decisive beginning, yes. Not quibbling over that. But it's not the end either. It's the beginning. And so, you know, I, I like to think out loud and I benefit from the opportunity to, to um, iron sharpens iron, you might say, in our conversations. And we have a Wednesday morning men's group at our church. And, and most Wednesdays I attend, if there's not some reason that I can't make it, I attend. And, and we were having a discussion about some of these kinds of things this week and, and trying to understand the scriptures better. And we always start with a portion of the Bible. And somehow this came up, and I heard myself saying, and I I said to the guys, I said, I'm a little concerned about saying this because some of you may not understand, but I want, want us to begin to realize that salvation is not formulaic, it's forming. You know, we often think it's formulaic, just pray a prayer, go to the altar, respond to the third singing of just as I am, whatever. And I'm not discounting or demeaning or diminishing any of that. What I'm saying is that we need to realize that 
This whole idea of salvation is a beginning where God works in us to form us into his holy people. It's not simply a formula that helps us avoid going to a very hot place that we don't want to go when we die. So salvation is forming. It's not formulaic. And along that line, I mentioned the Wednesday morning Bible study group. I really hope you have a Bible study group that helps you think out loud. For many years, I have been amazed at how God uses those times, at least for me. I hope it does for all the other people that participate as well. But he really uses those times of, of thinking through and talking about what the Bible says to help form us and to help us have insights into the Bible. So I really hope you have, and I hope you can find, that's my 10 things, I think number eight this week. I hope you have a Bible study group that helps you think out loud because I really want you to be able to do that because I think that will be so formative in your life and helpful. And it needs to be a place where you can where you can bring up your, what you might think are kind of far out ideas that people won't throw you out the window because you brought up that question or that idea. It needs to be a place where you can where you can wrestle with these things and come to good conclusions, biblically based conclusions. And I've been thinking number nine, and again this started some weeks ago when I was away on sabbatical. But I number nine, I, I'm continually reminding myself that we must always preserve the authority of the Bible always preserve the authority of the Bible. It's how we get in trouble if we try to explain away or deny or ignore parts of the Bible. We have to maintain the authority of the Bible. Now, number 10, along that line, is I understand that Christians differ on interpretation. All right, one group thinks this about this concept, another group thinks this, and so on. Well, We've always had those kinds of stretching conversations or differences in biblical interpretation. I don't think that's a new thing that's gone back in the history of God's people, that they've regularly and repeatedly struggled with these things and wrestled with the interpretations. We can respect each other's differences when it's an honest disagreement on interpretation. I, I think we can do that, but we must all agree to preserve the authority of the Bible. What's happening in our day is not so much honest theological conversation, but a real attempt to make the Bible say what we want it to say so we can live the life that we want it to say. Most Christian groups agree on most of the things from the Bible. We don't necessarily disagree on every every little piece of interpretation. But there is developing and has developed a strong movement to diminish the authority of the Bible, and we must not do that. So when you're looking for a church, and you have found one, haven't you? Well, I hope so. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to stop encouraging you to find a church. You need to find a church that's, that keeps closest to the Bible, and what I mean by that is make sure they do not compromise biblical authority. Make sure that the things they understand are absolutely firmly rooted in what the Bible says and what God says so that we don't have any reason to talk ourselves into or out of certain things that the Bible is clear about. Because the Bible is very clear about almost all of the things that matter most, and we need to preserve that. Well, those are some things I've been thinking. You may be thinking some others, and 
And again, I want to say, find a place that preserves the authority of the Bible where you can think out loud with some people that, that you trust and that trust you so that you can come to good conclusions and so that you can make good life decisions based upon the authority of the Bible. So now we want to shift into some words of wisdom from God for us today. And really it's framed in the terms of, of wise and foolish and really, it's also framed in one case in terms of idiots versus the prudent. Now, that's pretty strong language for God to use, but we'll get to that. But I want to start with the story of Joshua. And we know that Joshua was the successor of Moses. He began to lead the people into the promised land as God had directed them. And toward the end of the book of Joshua, in chapter 24, there's a real interesting situation where that Joshua and the people have kind of a heart-to-heart talk. And Joshua got them all together, and he spent a long time in chapter 24 recounting how God had helped them, led them out of Egypt, all the things that had happened to them, how God had delivered them from their enemies, how God had given them the land they were living in, all the great things that God had done, and he reminded them of God's faithfulness to them and how he had helped them over and over and over. So in chapter 24, then, Joshua begins to make a statement to them of challenge. Similar to the way we challenge each other to stretch in God's direction, this is a specific kind of challenge. And so I want to read from the New Living Translation. It's a good translation, quite clear. If you struggle with understanding the Bible, try the New Living Translation. Yeah, I think it would be very helpful for you. It may not be the only one you want to use. I typically use a different one, but you've got to remember I'm me, and that's why what I use for my purposes. And you need to use what will help God speak to you. So let me read a few verses from chapter 24 of Joshua, starting with verse 14. Joshua is speaking here. So fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. Heartedly. Put away forever the idols your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Serve the Lord alone. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. Would you prefer the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates? Or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live? But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. So Joshua is reminding them in these few words of all that God had done for them, what they had benefited by following God. And then he's saying, decide today if you will fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. And then he sums it up by saying, I'm in. Me and my family, we will serve the Lord. Verse 16, the people replied, we would never abandon the Lord and serve other gods, for the Lord our God is the one who rescued us and our ancestors from slavery in the land of Egypt. He performed mighty miracles before our very eyes. As we traveled through the wilderness among our enemies, he preserved us. It was the Lord who drove out the Amorites and the other nations living here in the land, so we too will serve the Lord for he alone is our God. Then Joshua warned the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy and jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins if you abandon the Lord and serve other gods. He will turn against you and destroy you. 
even though he has been so good to you. So let's just interrupt a little bit right there. So the people made the same declaration. We would never abandon God. We're going to serve him. We're going to be faithful to him. Uh, he will be our God. He alone is our God. All those kind of things. And then Joshua turns around and says, no, you won't. No, you won't. Not going to happen. And then the people answer again in verse 21. But the people answered Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. Verse 22, Joshua responds, you are a witness to your own decision, Joshua said. You have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, they replied, we are witnesses to what we have said. All right, then, Joshua said, destroy the idols among you and turn your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God. We will obey him alone. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day at Shechem, committing them to follow the decrees and regulations of the Lord. It's very important. These kinds of ceremonies took place from time to time in the history of God's people. They were covenant reenactment ceremonies or or re-upping to the covenant, reminders to the people. And this is such an occasion here. And they are quite, quite, quite strong in saying, no, we're going to serve the Lord. And Joshua is equally strong and says, ha, no, you won't. You won't, really can't do that. You're not able to do that. And uh, and when he, when you don't, he's going to he's gonna crush you. And they were sure, oh, we're going to do it. Well, we know from the history of God's people, they didn't always serve God faithfully. But they had made that declaration that they would. These are the kind of things that, that we need to remind ourselves, too, that from time to time, God may challenge us. Say, are you going to serve me or are you going to serve something else? See, we come up to those kinds of things when, when there's a little challenge that we have to face, whether when he wants us to do something we don't think we want to do, or when he says, you know, you can't behave this way, you know, you have to do this. And sometimes I people hear people say, well, nobody speaks to me that way, or I don't have to take that. And God might whisper in your ear, really? What if I want you to have to take that? All those kind of things challenge us and, and cause us to consider our commitments. And God wants to know if we're going to be faithful And we're going to take a look at that through a story that Jesus told. And so we're going to take a break. You take a break. I'll be right back. The buildup of spike proteins is dangerous to your health. Global Healing's Foreign Protein Cleanse detoxes your body, removing the spike proteins, allowing your body to repair from within. Formulated by Dr. Edward Group and by Dr. Brian Artis, Foreign Protein Cleanse targets and detoxes spike proteins in the body. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system becomes less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code 
out loud. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. How can you improve your odds of staying healthy? The answer is stay healthy with Cofix Rx. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? Cofix has some great news. Besides being featured as a top five product in the drugstore news, we completed the protocol that you've heard Dr. McCullough talk about. Cofix Rx is already famous for a powerful virus-hostile nasal solution, and now we have a throat spray too. Crush those nasty germs before they become a problem. With known antiviral support ingredients like povidone iodine, xylitol, and vitamin D3, you can feel a little safer. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix Rx throat spray to your order, you'll receive 25% off the entire purchase. Just click the Cofix Rx banner on the America Out Loud website or store. Be sure to use promo code OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Don't forget, OUTLOUD25 at checkout. You wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. What about washing your nose? I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe, air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. No messy bottles to fill, no drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R.com. With the rise of independent media, we are now AmericaOutloud.news. For the genius of the United States is not found in its executives or legislatures, nor its ambassadors, authors, colleges, or churches, nor even in its newspapers or inventors. The genius of the United States is we the people. AmericaOutloud.news, liberty and justice for all. and we're ready to go. We've been thinking about a lot of things and there's been a lot of lot of food for thought already on the program. We're stretching each other in God's direction. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens and I am the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, where we wrestle with these things all the time too and we wrestle with them because we want God to speak to us and tell us the truth and we want to stretch in his direction. You see, God doesn't come to us and say, you better do this or else. Well, of course, there are consequences to rejecting God. We understand that. But God doesn't come to us with a heavy hand. He comes to us with an invitation. Would you like to be my people? That's what he said to to Abram when he became God's covenant partner and God changed his name to Abraham. I'd like to be your friend. And Abraham was a friend of God. And the people then that came from that promise that God gave Abraham that he would have a son, all of the people that were his descendants became the people of God, the covenant people, because God offered that opportunity. He didn't come to Abraham and say, 
well, if you don't do this, I'm going to annihilate you. No, he said, I'd like to be your covenant partner. He doesn't come to you and, and threaten you, do this or else, I'm going to crush you. He comes and says, I want to bless you. I want to invite you in to be my holy people. And so that's the whole point of covenant. And we just talked about how Joshua had reminded the people of all that God had done, invited them to renew that covenant, which they did. They said they would follow him, which they didn't, which we know from history. But the point is that God comes to us and reminds us so that we have the opportunity to re-up or renew our faithful commitments to him. And we often talk on this program, and we will continue to talk about it, that we need to have confidence in God. God wants to show himself to us in a way that inspires our confidence. At the same time, God wants to know if we're going to be faithful. And so in those covenant renewal times, like the illustration from Joshua 24, God heard his people say, we're going to be yours. We're going to be yours. And God is looking for people he can trust in the same way that we want to be able to trust God. So we come to the story of Jesus, and this idea of, of commitment and of faithfulness crops up in a number of the ways Jesus teaches the people, and then, of course, through the Scriptures, teaches us. And I've always loved, I as long as I can remember, loved the parables that Jesus taught and been fascinated by them. And so Jesus taught a parable then I hinted at it earlier when I said that uh, it's really a parable between idiots and the prudent. And I get that because one of the Bible translators that I consulted when I was preparing for this described the, the women in here, and there are ten of them mentioned, and I'll read the story in a minute, but he described five of them as idiots and five of them as prudent. And I thought, wow, tell us how you really think about it. And, and the reason that got my attention was because I haven't really thought about it in such stark terms. And I like it when a Bible translation reads a little differently and causes me to think about it a little more carefully. Most of the time, and it's true in the translation I'm going to read from now, it refers to these, these women, these bridesmaids, as foolish and wise. Well, that's not quite as harsh as idiots or prudent. Well, the prudent I get, but idiots, wow. But really, when you think about it, and as you re-hear the story, and I'm going to read it in just a second, I think we can understand why that particular translator said idiots. Because really, isn't it true that it's, it's ultimately foolish and idiotic to reject the God who created everything, who comes to us and offers all of himself to us? as his people? Isn't it an idiotic decision to reject that? Well, yeah, it is. So, okay, let's take a look at the parable. It's, it's, a, it's fun. Uh, we'll talk about it at, at the other side. But I'm reading from Matthew chapter 25. It's, it begins with verse 1, ends at verse 13. Again, I'm going to read from that New Living Translation I mentioned earlier because sometimes people like a different translation like I do. I like to consult different ones. And this one's pretty clear about what's going on here, and I thought it might be helpful for us. So, Matthew 25, starting with verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids, who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough olive oil for their lamps, but the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil. 
When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight they were roused by the shout, Look, the bridegroom is coming, come out and meet him. All the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps. Then the five foolish ones asked the others, Please, give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, We don't have enough for all of us. Go to a shop and buy some for yourselves. But while they were gone to buy oil, the bridegroom came. Then those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was locked. Later, when the other five bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back, Believe me, I don't know you. So you too must keep watch, for you do not know the day or hour of my return. And so Jesus was saying to all of us and to his disciples at the time that he will come back. This was obviously just before he ascended to heaven, before the incidents of Holy Week. And he was preparing them for all of these kinds of things and for his return. And and there are a number of parables that address this kind of thing. And this is one of them. Now, parables are stories that have some connection to the things that we understand. They're earthly stories with, some people have said, a heavy meaning. And yeah, that's true. Or some people say, well, they're earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. Well, okay, I get why they say that. The important thing is that they're meant to be accessible to us and explain something to us that we might not understand, but that we can understand because it's in terms that we're familiar with. Now, our challenge is we're not always familiar with all of the New Testament setting of things, and so we have to work a little harder to understand some of these things because we're not really familiar with having oil for lamps, for example, because we use electricity. But we can understand what's going on here, and we can gain wisdom from that. It's also important for us to realize how serious the situation is, because in the end, the consequence for the girls who did not have extra oil were severe. And we need to recognize that God tells us the truth so that we aren't surprised when we come up against a consequence that we weren't really prepared for. So it starts out, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven. Now, often when we hear the phrase kingdom of heaven, we think about what we call heaven, referring to a place where we aspire to go at the end of time or when we die. Well, really, this is a a figure of speech that that is used in those days. It could have been kingdom of God, but they often didn't use the word Yahweh because they revered the sacred name. So this idea of kingdom of heaven is really referring to the kingdom where God rules and reigns, not specifically to what we think of as heaven. And he talks about it in terms of a wedding and a bride and a bridegroom, and that all makes sense because they understood what weddings were, they understood brides and grooms, and we do too, and we need to do our best to make sure we gather all the things that, that fit together and make this work. So that's what we're trying to do here. Now, a little background on weddings in those days, and we don't know all of the details. I've heard these from a variety of sources, and it kind of resonates and makes sense when I've tried to put all the stories together. But essentially what would happen in those days was when a bride and a groom agreed to marry, or rather when their families agreed on the wedding, well, then the son of the, of the one family, the potential groom, has to get ready for the arrival of the bride. And so he has to go and prepare a place 
for that bride to come. And they would have a big wedding feast and ceremony and all the things at that place. And it wasn't until that young man's family, particularly his father, said it was time that he could go. And then he would go to the home of his bride where he would claim his bride and bring her back for the ceremony, the wedding feast, as it were. We get a little glimpse of what happened at wedding feasts from the story of Jesus in Cana of Galilee. Well, so this story is set in the context of celebrating a wedding. And it appears, and it's a little difficult to know the details because, like I said, we have some sketchy information. But it appears that these ten bridesmaids were waiting for the arrival of the bride and groom. Now, sometimes in those days, when the groom would go to the bride's home, there would be a feast or a celebration before she departed to go with him back to his home, where the wedding would be finalized through the ceremony and the feasting and the fellow and the uh, fellowship and this and all of the things that went on with the wedding ceremony and and reception. We would call it afterwards. It appears that these particular women who are described here in this English translation as bridesmaids were waiting at the home of the groom for his return from having gone to get the bride. And they were waiting outside the door, ready to be kind of a reception party as they came back. And they were there. They had oil for their lamps, which was a necessary thing to have. It was night. and It was appropriate for them to have. You couldn't have the groom arriving in the dark. And so five of them were prepared because they had extra oil for their lamps and five did not. Uh, they may have used handheld lamps. That's possible. I've read a number of things that people say. They might have been torches. I don't know exactly what they were, but by, by any account, everyone agrees that they had to have a fuel supply, which was the oil. And so the five who were described as wise had taken extra oil and had plenty of oil. The five that were described as foolish, or in the other translation I cons consulted, were described as idiots, did not have enough. And so it was a long time before the bridegroom returned. That was not necessarily thought of as unusual. People will have understood that because they did not know when they would return back from claiming the bride. And so they're drowsy and they go to sleep and yet, as this one says, at midnight they were awakened because here comes the bridegroom. He's coming now. Then they needed to go out and meet him and welcome him. And so they got up and they prepared their lamps and five of them were ready because they had extra oil. They would not run out. And five of them didn't have enough and were told, well, you'll have to go get some more. And so they do. Now, keep in mind, people might say, well, weren't all the shops closed at midnight? Remember, this was a small town and a wedding was a big deal. All of the towns in ancient times were pretty small. So this probably would have been the kind of thing that everybody in town would have known about. So it wouldn't have been hard for them to know where to go to get extra oil. And it might not have been at all an odd thing for somebody to come at a time like this looking for extra oil. There's no hint of that in the parable. No sense of that at all from anything we understand about this. That, was, that seems odd to us, but they apparently knew where to go to get oil and had no problem doing it. And they went to get some. Well, while they were gone, sure enough, here comes the wedding party. Described here in verse 10 as the bridegroom came and the people that were ready went in and were welcomed into the, the marriage feast and all of the festivities that went with that. And the door was locked behind them. That celebration continues and all of a sudden 
There's a knock on the door. The five who were described as idiots in the one translation, or foolish in many English translations, returned, and they're outside knocking on the door and saying, hey, let us in. We're back. We've got oil. And the response is, I don't know you. And they weren't allowed in. It's really quite interesting that they weren't allowed in, but they weren't. And uh, it's a great disappointment. And Jesus sums things up by saying, you must keep watch, for you do not know the day or hour of my return. So this whole thing is unfolding as a story, a simple story that people would have understood because they understood the context and the setting, and they would have understood the importance of having extra oil because if these were torches in those days, those torches would have only burned for about 15 minutes before they needed to be either replaced with another oil-soaked rag or replenished somehow. And so they understood the need to be ready. It wasn't a surprise at all to them. And they would have understood when you're prepared, you're prepared. When you're not prepared, you're in trouble because you can't keep a torch burning or a lamp burning without oil. It's also very clear in here, and this is a sometimes a problem people in our day have, but it's very clear that there's a contrast between the foolish and the wise. It was a clear contrast, a clear distinction. It wasn't debated in the story. It wasn't excused. It just was. Now, we live in a time when we like excuses. But Jesus, by teaching us this story, is not at all giving us a pass on that. He is saying it's just the way it is. Some were wise and some were foolish. And it's important to be among the wise. You know, if you're not ready, you're out. And that's the way it is. It was a matter of preparedness versus unpreparedness. And the tragic consequences of not being prepared. Really tragic. They were left out. Now, some people have trouble with this idea. Well, they were left out. How come? Well, they, why didn't they just let them in? Didn't they really know them? Well, as, as Jesus tells the story, it says, uh, I don't know you. That is the response to the people that came too late, to the girls that came too late. I don't know you. Well, some people in our day would question that and say, well, surely they knew who they were. Small town, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have really not known who they were. Well, here's the interesting twist on that that was a reality in those days. Yes, they probably didn't know them, but they also knew that they weren't prepared for the wedding, which was expected and which was doing the right thing. So in a real sense, their lack of preparation was an insult to the bridegroom's family. And that was a great offense. And so when they say to them, we don't know you, they are really saying, you insulted us and embarrassed us, and we can't let you in. Well, Jesus is saying, if you're not ready for my return, because clearly in the story, it's a story talking about the return of Jesus at some future time. It reminds us that his return might be delayed, because the bridegroom's return was delayed. And that's not to be a surprise to us. We're supposed to be prepared for that. It reminds us that if we are wise, we will be prepared. We will take whatever steps are necessary to be prepared. 
And that is, the, in essence, the definition of wisdom in this parable. Wisdom is described as being prepared for the return of Jesus. And it's defined in terms of the end of time. Isn't that interesting? We sometimes talk about the practice of wisdom, and that's important. We need to practice wisdom. Well, in this particular instance, the problem was they didn't prepare themselves for every possibility for the late arrival of the bridegroom. And Jesus is saying you need to be prepared. Wisdom is prepared, knowing the certainty I will come. There's no doubt that he will come. Jesus represented here by the bridegroom. There's no question he will come. The real question is, will people be ready? And this idea of wisdom and readiness are the virtually synonyms in this parable. And they're the lessons that we need to learn, that we need to be wise and we need to be ready for the return of the bridegroom. Now, people sometimes say, well, what about this business of falling asleep? If we're supposed to be ready, to, are supposed to never fall asleep? Well, keep in mind that there's no mention, as Jesus calls us, of a problem with falling asleep. That's not the problem. They all fell asleep. Both the wise and the foolish fell asleep. So that's not the problem. The problem is that when they were awakened, and they were awakened in plenty of time to be prepared for the bridegroom's arrival, when they awakened, some of them did not have what they needed to be prepared. Now, some people might say, well, okay, now if we're supposed to be ready for Jesus, what do we need so that we'll be prepared? Well, the answer to that is read the stories of Jesus, and he will tell you how to be prepared. He will tell you how to follow him. He will tell you life in the kingdom of heaven, what it means to be one of God's people, what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be faithful. And see here, it appears that God is looking for people who will be faithful, who will be faithful in the sense that they will be wise and ready for his return. Now, some people will also say, well, why didn't the why didn't the people that had extra oil just share their oil with the others? And and you know, we think about that in our context and and we would think that, well, maybe we should. The parable also makes it clear that that there wouldn't have been enough to keep the lamps burning if they had shared. And so the point is not whether they share or not. The point is we need to take individual responsibility to be prepared. And it's very interesting in this collective culture. This is a culture that that was not individualistic like ours. This is a culture where they all fought along the same lines and and acted along the same way. They were not taught to stand out as individuals, but here they are very clearly taught and it's very clearly spelled out that Jesus said individually you need to be responsible for having enough oil in your lamps. And if you don't, the consequence is serious because you won't be let in. You won't have the opportunity to come into the feast, to the marriage festival. And of course, we know from other places in the Bible, the Bible is quite clear about this, that, that the end of time, when it's all summed up and it's explained in the book of Revelation, it is described in terms of a marriage festival, a marriage feast. And so we want to be ready to enter into that marriage feast. We do not want to have the door shut and to be told, I don't know you. Very significant. 
very significant. So just to kind of summarize, this is setting is in the context of a typical wedding in town. Everybody would have known these people were betrothed. And here the bride is waiting for the groom to come and claim her. And finally he does. He goes, he's given permission to go claim his bride. And as best we can tell, these girls described in the New Living Translation as bridesmaids, it's a good description, they, they were fulfilling their expected role in that day of helping with the celebration. They were waiting for the return of the bridegroom. Well, the bridegroom was a long time in coming, which would not have been unusual, and no one knew for sure. It wasn't like he was supposed to be there at a predetermined time, be here by this time. That, well, that wasn't the case at all. It was when he came back, they were to be ready. It was on them to be ready, not to tell him when to come. Are you saying yes to him today? Will you say yes to him tomorrow? Like the people in Joshua's time, yes, we will follow Jesus. And Joshua said, no, you won't. But they said, yes, we will. And Joshua said, okay, let's. And if you're saying yes, I want to say to you, okay, let's follow Jesus all the way home. I'm Pastor Rick.